0: Welcome to the Florida Specifier podcast. We're thrilled you joined us for our conversation today. I'm Ryan Matthews, and I'm joined by my co-host, Brett Cyphers. If you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, and want to support the show, please be sure to hit subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen, and don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review.
1: And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the Florida Specifier online at floridaspecifier.com. There's a lot more to come with the Specifier website, so go check it out and follow along with the future changes. The subscriptions and ratings truly make a difference. And we think you'll all enjoy all of the ways you can read, watch, listen, and learn from the specifier right at your fingertips.
0: We can't thank you enough for the support. Brett, what's happening today, buddy? Well, we are still
1: in Tampa enjoying a nice conference, enjoying a view out on the bay, enjoying the company of yet another of our friends and colleagues from Dewberry.
0: The magic of podcasting. Indeed. How are you, sir? I am well, man. I am thrilled to have been joined by Amy. I'm thrilled for our upcoming guest. I am lamenting a little bit the fact that I'm not on the bay that I'm currently staring at, but I'm doing good. As with every podcast we do together, I'm excited to sit down with you, my friend, and discuss a number of topics. But today's subject must really get your juices flowing. We've got a mutual friend and colleague who has successfully traversed both DEP and water management district world, just as you have, and has come out the other side and is now assisting public and private entities with regulatory permitting and compliance contracts, environmental policy, natural systems restoration, government negotiations, and environmental policy.
1: She's also smarter than me, which is it rubs it in a little extra hard. Our guest knows where all the bodies are buried in state government and has a tremendous acumen for navigating local and state regulatory agencies.
0: One of the topics I do want to explore on this particular episode is the biggest challenges that water management districts face in Florida. Both you and, and Lisa have uh, in-depth knowledge of that, and obviously each district is unique. But when you were at Northwest, what was your biggest challenge or what kept you up at night? One of the big
1: things I worried about was how to stay ahead of water quality catastrophes like they've had in places like Indian River Lagoon and Southeast Florida in recent years. But in a related sense, I worry about the smaller communities that have the same big responsibilities and needs but very little in the way of resources and technical help.
0: Yeah, the water quantity challenges of Northwest are certainly different than those of South Florida or St. John's. Water quality challenges differ due to urban versus rural populations, ag operations, etc. Obviously, we live in a populous and diverse state when it comes to natural resources and planning for the provision of water and wastewater services. Yeah,
1: I know in your practice at Gray Robinson, it's consisted of representing all kinds of rural communities, utilities of various sizes, so you have some real firsthand knowledge about the challenges they're facing, don't you?
0: I do. I've had experience just representing folks, you know, as small as Newberry outside of Gainesville to as large as Miami-Dade County. And so even though the population numbers are diverse, a lot of those challenges are similar. It's just simply how do they deal with the challenge? Do they have 150 people in an environmental planning department versus one who may do that half the time as a job? So I'm excited to talk to Lisa about it because I know she's been, you know, holding hands with communities of all sizes, but particularly our smaller communities in Florida to help them sort of navigate those challenges.
1: Yeah, let's get to her because few people in the state of Florida have the background and knowledge that she has and is actually now on the ground working in all facets of these challenges. And I am super psyched that Lisa Kelly is here. Welcome, Lisa.
2: Thanks, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I'm going to run through a little bit of your resume here for folks so they kind of know your background. Lisa spent 25 years in the public sector at both the Florida Department of Environmental Protection and the St. Johns River Water Management District, as mentioned by Ryan. During her time at the St. Johns River Water Management District as Assistant Executive Director, Lisa reduced operational expenses and increased revenues available for cost share, and other mission-related projects. Lisa is currently with Dewberry, where she assists clients navigating the regulatory and project landscapes through procurement, government negotiations, environmental policy, and the Florida legislature. Awesome to see you.
2: Thanks, guys. And as far as uh, knowing where those bodies are buried, you know, that's just rumor.
1: (laughs) Where are you from? Tell people just a little bit about yourself outside of that impressive resume.
2: I think what's important for folks to know is I am so passionate about Florida because Florida is my home. It's my family's home. I'm uh, born and raised in Florida, raised in Pensacola. I have roots in the panhandle. After I completed my degree, I moved to central Florida, so I got to know all the communities around central Florida. And then my time at the water management district allowed me to get to know communities in the northern, northeastern part of Florida. So from a background perspective, I grew up on the water, Water's my passion. It was the days before internet, so you had to find something to do, and that was camping and fishing and uh, connecting with our natural resources. Man, it was pretty awesome when I went to college and found out you can actually get a job doing the thing you love. There's jobs in water. Man, I thought I hit the uh, career lottery there when I found that out. And I still feel that way today.
0: Well, my first question is one I'm always interested in for folks like us who have made the transition from the public sector to the private sector. Have you fully taken your regulator hat off since you've left St. John's?
2: Well, you know, I feel lucky to have a lot of different hats in my closet. And I think if I ever completely took that hat off, I would be doing a disservice to my clients and to the state. That experience is really special. I had the chance to work with such bright people during my time in government and as a regulator, and understanding how policies were being established and where those regulations were coming from. And that insight is something that I really value. I appreciate the time and the experiences that I was offered in those roles. If I took that hat off, I don't think that I have a lot to offer to my clients. We need to have the ability to explain that in layman's terms, to, especially to small communities. You were mentioning small communities earlier. You know, We have small communities, and they have a lot on their plates. And to understand these complex environmental regulations and stay in compliance, I feel very fortunate that background helps me help them be successful.
1: Yeah, give me an example of that. Because I'm in the same position Ryan is, certainly as former deputy secretary of DEP, former secretary of DEP, working on these all the time. Talk about something where, like a real tangible situation that you're like, man, I've seen this before. I know how to help you unravel this problem.
2: I've had some folks who found themselves in some unfortunate circumstances where maybe they weren't in compliance. So they come, they get in a DEP inspection, there's some non compliance items. And the utility waits for the correspondence from the agency, just sitting waiting. It comes through. There's a number of corrective actions. Basically, have accepted whatever the agency has said you need to do. And sometimes what the agency says is in good intention, but maybe it's not necessarily what's required by rule and it can be a cost burden on a community. What's happened in situations like that is when those draft orders come in or warning letters come in or conversations are happening, being able to sit at the table and talk about what's really going on in that community and then how the actions of the community will actually lead to them being in compliance has been incredibly important. I am a firm believer of communication and over-communication. And by communicating with each other at the table, we've been able to solve some pretty hard problems.
0: Let's focus in on utilities, and, and particularly in the more small and rural areas of the state. A lot of people would lay claim that our smaller communities are just sort of the natural preservation of old Florida, right? And obviously, it's there's such a distinction between Orlando, Tampa, Jacksonville, and then Cedar Key, Isle Mirada, Newberry, etc. A lot of those folks struggle with wastewater and water issues. They don't have the rate base to really have ad valorem taxes and a lot of money available at their hands. How can you help smaller communities like that when none are alike, particularly depending on elected officials, etc.? How do you best help those folks in terms of looking and achieving their goals from a water and wastewater perspective?
2: That's a great question because it's a hard situation for these communities to be in. One, you have a limited number of staff running the show. The best way... Way we've been able to help folks is again having conversations And explaining to the decision makers in these communities what the rules require, what's on the horizon, how to get ahead of it, how to start planning budgets. When you're talking about a wastewater plant, let's be honest, most wastewater plants aren't the pride and joy of a community. And your commissions are like, hey, let's throw some more money at the wastewater plant for infrastructure. That's not what the residents of the community are seeing, and they want to make sure that, you know, they're taking care of their communities and their constituents. When we talk about it, to make sure that those communities are successful is to say, hey, you've got growth coming Usually they're calling us because they've got growth coming. What do I need to do? And with growth comes the other bigger picture things we need to look at. It's a very holistic process because, for example, there's one very small town that we work with. They have a population of, I don't know, about 650 people, 400 homes, a very small, small wastewater plant. If they bring in a new development of 40 homes, that's a significant increase to the flow to their tiny wastewater plant. And then that may trigger new requirements because now you're over 50% of your flow. Now you're going to have to start planning for expansions. And we really work with them to say, let's don't talk about just bringing that one small subdivision online, but what is this going to look like for the whole community for long term.
1: I don't want to just say, oh, government bad. I mean, I've spent 20 years in government. But you've been in government. You've been outside of government. In terms of dealing with situations like that, especially those smaller communities, are there things going on in state government that make it easier in some ways? Are there things that make it harder for them to react to those changes, the changes in requirements?
2: I think it really, it's an it depends It depends situation based off of where you are geographically, and not just geographically. We've talked before about how geographically needs are different, so focuses are different. You know, if you're located near the Indian River Lagoon, we are focused on Indian River Lagoon. So we have to look at things from the regional interest, one, but from a regulatory standpoint, what we do see some of the challenge is turnover, And look, it's true in any of our businesses. You're bringing new people on. They want to do the best job they possibly can. You know, I want to make my bosses happy, gung-ho, all of the energy in the world. We're turning folks loose to do those jobs, and they may not have the years of experience with them yet. They're going to grow because we were all there once, too. But in this day, you know, I know it's really hard for government. I've heard in different areas, you know, it's harder to recruit. Some places just aren't as attractive as others. In those areas where it's harder to recruit, you see the knowledge base become a little bit of a struggle because you're trying to get those folks to come along and get up to speed with what's going on with a particular utility. Not just talking about staffing from a state agency perspective, but That also flows over to our our communities. You know, staffing is an issue. And if you've got one person there that's had all the historic knowledge and that person retires, you have had a void in filling the position because it's hard to recruit, the new person comes in they're drowning in the first weeks because they're trying to come up to speed. So it's a mutual thing where staffing has been a problem. And we've seen some mistakes that can happen because of that. But that really leads to having conversations about, hey, what can we know? Let's talk about this together. Let's work collaboratively to push through it so that everyone is on the same page here and we know how to move forward and grow from the experience.
1: Yeah. And Ryan and I are very familiar with your work at the district. We can't help overlap in our other lives now, of course. So anyone that knows you knows that you're adept at solving complex natural resource issues. What are some of the favorite projects, some of the the success stories right now and how you approached these projects that involved either the public or private sector?
2: There's a common theme that I've experienced for all of the projects I think that have been most meaningful to me personally, and it's always about finding efficiencies. So any project that I've worked on that's been able to save time and save money has been a win. It's hard to pick out a favorite, but at the beginning of this, when you were introducing me, we talked about my time at the district was ways to find efficiencies in how we ran our operations so that we could get dollars back out to the communities who need it to work on beneficial projects. These communities want to do projects. They need the money to do the project, and it's important and mission-aligned. Let's get the money to the right projects. So when we can come back and, and you say there's efficiencies and that provides funding sources, it's been a real win. Time efficiencies is important. I can share that when I was at DEP, one of the things I was most proud of was working with the compliance assurance program, And to be able to create a structure where, when followed, your increasing compliance was a tremendous reward. So especially dealing with these small communities, you've got folks who want to comply. They need the guidance and opportunity to straighten things out if there was something that's gone awry. And that compliance assistance program is just to me a tremendous, tremendous thing to be proud of because at the end of the day when we don't have violations, we've collaboratively worked together to correct problems, it's a win across the board. And it improves the relationship between the regulated community and the regulators. So when I was working in that role and being able to work with my peers across the state to roll out that program, I felt that incredibly rewarding because we were looking at big picture. We're not taking time away from agency staff or from communities, operators, or support staff. We're utilizing dollars in a way that make things work most efficiently and effectively. So that's really the areas where I've been most proud of. That continues in everything we do today. No matter who the client is, everyone wants the same thing. You want to do it right. You want to be efficient. You want to be effective. And you want to have the funds to make it happen.
0: I'm glad you said that, Lisa, because I think when compliance time goes down, when violations go down, you generally can – spin a narrative or folks can spin a narrative that there are shortcuts being taken with environmental resource protection. And so I think having someone of your ilk uh, with the experience of guiding communities through those compliance quandaries is just a wonderful tool to have in any communities a toolkit. So thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be sure for the listener to get your information out there so folks can continue to contact you and the good folks at Dewberry.
2: Thanks guys. My pleasure. Yeah, you bet.
1: All right, that's it. Thanks for listening to the Florida Specifier podcast. We appreciate your support. Production of this podcast is by Carl Soren and David Barfield at Lonely Fox Studios. A special thank you goes out to Bagels and Biscuits, who were kind enough to let us use their music for the show. Check them out wherever you get your music. If you have an idea for an article for the specifier or topic for this podcast, be sure to let us
0: know. We'd love to hear from you. Join us next time as we continue to delve into the issues, policy, and people that environmental professionals and policymakers want to know about And that's it. For Brett Cyphers, I'm Ryan Matthews. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.